You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1938th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 20th of July 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Colin Holmes and your readers are Val Fletcher and Neil Keeley. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence, as always, with the headlines. Headmaster at school sacked after gross misconduct. Mum infuriated at lack of change. £650,000 worth of cannabis seized by police in Suffolk. Stephen was a village institution. The headmaster of an independent school has been sacked for gross misconduct. Julian Johnson Monday has been dismissed from his role at Culford School following an independent investigation. A letter to parents on Monday said the probe, conducted by an independent lawyer, found that he had breached a number of the school's internal policies and his actions constituted, quote, gross misconduct and a breach of trust that was incompatible with his leadership role, unquote. The allegations did not concern pupils. A spokesman for the Methodist Independent School Trust, the MIST, which owns Culford, said, This was not a decision taken lightly, and we are all saddened by it. However, his actions rendered his remaining in position untenable. The Charity Commission has confirmed that MIST filed a serious incident report relating to a former employee at the school, and the Commission was assured that appropriate steps were being taken. Mr Johnson Monday was suspended earlier this year while an investigation was carried out, followed by disciplinary and appeal processes. Culford School wrote to parents in January to inform them that he would be absent from the school for a short period for personal reasons. A school spokesperson said they would be reporting the matter in full to all the relevant regulatory bodies and authorities. The letter on Monday from Mark Donoghue, Chairman of Governors, said, We recognise that this has been an unsettling time for our community and we are sorry for the frustration this has caused. However, the investigation, disciplinary and appeal processes took time to complete. As we are sure you will appreciate, it would have been both inappropriate and prejudicial to communicate about these matters until these processes had been fully concluded. Claire Bentley, who has been acting head since January, will take on the role of interim head until a permanent head is appointed. The recruitment process to appoint a new head will be initiated shortly, led by Mr Donoghue and a subcommittee of the Board of Governors. Rory Parker will become acting head of the prep school and Victoria Steers becomes head of pre-prep. A school spokesperson said, We are saddened by this decision, which was only taken after a thorough investigation and a rigorous disciplinary and appeals process. The allegations under investigation neither concern pupils nor have they impacted the school's financial position, which remains robust. The Berry Free Press asked the Independent Schools Inspectorate if it was now involved in looking at what has happened at Culford School, had been informed of the issues or if Mr Johnson Monday's dismissal would trigger an inspection of the school. A spokeswoman said there were two main issues of inspections, routine and non-routine. Non-routine inspections include those which can be triggered in part by events at a school or by a number of other factors. The Department for Education decides which schools should undergo a non-routine inspection and then commissions the ISI to undertake them. The DfE receives concerns about schools and uses these, along with other information, to decide on non-routine inspections. 
The ISI spokeswoman said they could not comment on any of the inspections and that the Department for for Education had asked them to undertake. When the department was asked if it had been informed about Mr Johnson Monday, it said the teaching regulation agency did not comment on individual cases, including confirming whether a referral has been received in relation to an individual. Corrie McKeague's mother says she is infuriated after discovering the bins at the site where her son went missing are not securely locked. Mr McKeague was 23 when he vanished after a night out in Bury St Edmunds in September 2016. An inquest held last year concluded that the airman, who was based at RAF Honington, died after getting into a bin which was tipped into a waste lorry. Mr McKeague was last seen on CCTV at 3.25am on September 24, 2016, entering a service area behind a Greg's shop in Bury St Edmunds town centre. His body has never been found, despite extensive searches at a landfill site in Cambridgeshire. His mother, Nicola Urquhart, has now called on Biffa, the disposal company which transported the bin Mr McGeeg was believed to be in, to introduce more secure locks. Biffa said its staff undergo regular training refreshers and the company was committed to protecting members of the public. After Mr McKeague's inquest at Suffolk Coroner's Court, a Prevention of Future Deaths report by Senior Coroner Nigel Parsley said ineffective bin locks contributed to Mr McKeague's death. Mr Parsley said the inquest was told that bin locks were designed to keep waste within the bin, keep inclement weather out, but were not designed to keep individuals out. The locks were described as not robust and a determined or strong individual would get in, said Mr Parsley in the report. Due to their design, the locks were also frequently broken. Stronger locks, such as snap locks, had been considered, but due to the risk of entombing an individual inadvertently becoming locked inside, a bin stronger locks had been discounted. However, the court heard there are currently no stronger bin locks available, which would allow an individual to open them from the inside should they become entombed in a bin. The Prevention of Future Deaths report also noted there had been 740 reported incidents of people in bins over a six-year period, which would likely be reduced if locks were used. The inquest jury concluded Mr McKeague died as a result of compression asphyxia in association with multiple injuries, as well as being contributed to by impaired judgment due to alcohol consumption. Since last year's inquest, Biffa has introduced stickers on its bins, warning people against getting inside them. But Mrs Urquhart believes only the use of locks would prevent them from being opened. She said, Since Corrie went missing and police searched the landfill, every time I would go round the bins were unlocked. The coroner's report said that the business needs to look at aspects of this. I perhaps naively thought they would do something to negate this risk. When I saw the bins were unlocked, I was sick to my stomach that this is Biffa's response to someone dying, that they think it is a proportionate response. It just infuriated me. They know there is a real and present risk that someone might be in a bin, but if a bin is locked, no one would climb in it. A Biffa spokesman said, As a waste management company with operations nationwide, the health, safety and well-being of our employees, customers and members of the public is of critical importance to us. Our drivers undergo regular refresher training on the risk of people in and around bins. People seeking shelter in bins presents a challenge to the whole waste industry and we continue to work with our partners, colleagues and customers to address this issue. An estimated £650,000 worth of cannabis has been seized in the county in a crackdown on organised crime.
As part of a national operation, Suffolk Constabulary focused on targeting those involved in the production of cannabis, executing a total of nine warrants and making eight arrests. In addition to the cannabis seizures, £1,100 in cash was seized, along with equipment used for the cultivation of cannabis. Suffolk Constabulary worked alongside the Eastern Regional Special Operations Unit and partner agencies to target the criminal networks involved in cannabis production and other serious criminality. Detective Superintendent Tam Burgess said, To locate and seize such a large quantity of drugs is a great result for Suffolk Constabulary and the county. We know the illicit drugs trade is the cause of so much harm within our communities. The disruption this will cause to organised crime groups who are involved in a wide array of criminality cannot be underestimated. Often these groups are involved in Class A drug importation, modern slavery and wider violence and exploitation. Cannabis factories can also cause damage to the properties themselves or be at risk of fire, unlawful abstraction of electricity, fumes and water damage. The force also issued signs for members of the public to look for, to spot if a property could be being used as a cannabis factory. These include frequent visitors to a property at unsocial hours throughout the day and night, blacked out windows or condensation on the windows even when it is not cold outside, bright lights in rooms throughout the night, electricity meters being tampered with or altered, and new cabling sometimes leading to street lighting. High electricity bills could also be an indicator, a powerful, distinctive, sweet, sickly aroma and noise from fans. Lots of work or deliveries of equipment to an address, particularly those associated with growing plants indoors without soil, such as heaters and lighting. An excessive amount of plant pots, chemicals, fertilisers and compost. Dressed in red, 400 people and a procession of 60 tractors made their way through Woolpit to say goodbye to a man who knew tractors like the back of his hand. It was a fitting tribute to Stephen Proctor, one of the founders of the annual rally Woolpit Steam, who was described by some as a village institution. Dad always seemed to know someone everywhere he went, said Stephen's eldest son, Johnny Proctor. Stephen had spent his whole life in the village of Woolpit. Born on March 16th, 1961, He was the middle child of five children born to Thelma and John. Stephen had two older brothers, David and Peter, and two younger sisters, Tracy and Susan. After leaving school at 16, Stephen found his first job at Thurlow Nun Standen in Elmswell, a dealership of Massey Ferguson agricultural vehicles. This marked the beginning of Stephen's lifelong love affair with tractors. He would spend the rest of his life working with farming vehicles and sharing his skill and passion with everyone he knew. In fact, Stephen was one of the founders of the Woolpit Steam. What started out as a small village gathering held at Grange Farm has grown over the years into a prestigious annual event in the Woolpit calendar with agricultural displays, steam engines and vintage tractors. Thousands of pounds have been raised over the years for local charities. It was also at Thurlow Nunn that Stephen came by his nickname Percy. With two other Stephens already working at the dealership, Stephen's colleagues began calling him Percy, a name which has stuck with him ever since. Stephen threw himself into farming life and began attending dances and discos arranged by the Suffolk Young Farmers Club. It was here that he met Christine, the woman who was to become his wife of nearly 41 years. The couple tied the knot on August 7th, 1982. Stephen and Christine decided to stay in Woolpit and raise their family in the village where he had grown up. Their daughter Cheryl arrived in 1982 
with Johnny following in 1984. Twin boys Robert and Andrew came along in 1989, completing the family of six. When his children were young, Stephen went to work on Barrack Farm in Woolpit for Bob and Patricia Baker. Johnny remembers his father taking him to the farm with him and he would sit and watch, fascinated, as Stephen worked. Stephen would often give his son little projects to do and Johnny remembers many happy times spent sitting with his father as he patiently explained how to fix whatever it was that they were working on. Stephen spent more than 30 years working at Barrack Farm and was immensely proud to be presented with a long service award at the Suffolk Show, recognising this contribution. Although he took early retirement age 60, Stephen had no intention of slowing down just yet. Inspired by his father, Johnny had set up his own business, Woolpit Engineering, in 2017 and Stephen decided to come on board two years ago. Working with his father was, Johnny said, brilliant. I'm glad we had the chance to work together, he said. He helped me a long way. Stephen loved to collect tractors and amassed quite a collection of vintage models. In 2013, the German manufacturer's class held a competition in celebration of its 100th anniversary, looking for its oldest combine. Stephen entered a combine he kept stored in his shed, which turned out to be the oldest class combine in the UK. As a prize, Stephen was flown out to Germany to be shown around the class factory. He was also presented with a cheque for £500, but Stephen decided to donate this to the children's ward at West Suffolk Hospital, Bury St Edmunds. Dad would help anyone in a muddle, said Johnny. That was what he was like, a helpful, happy person. Stephen Proctor died after a short illness on Tuesday, June the 6th, aged 62. Now I have some in brief uh, articles. First one is uh, bills set to shut due to rising costs. A Bury St Edmunds restaurant is set to shut. Bills in Abigate Street is to close next month. The restaurant has told customers that it will shut on August the 5th due to rising costs. Bills opened in June 2014 in the former Barclays Bank. It launched alongside Cote Brasserie in the former bank. Bills was approached for comment. Secondly, man hospitalised after incident. A man was taken to hospital after a health-related incident at a Bury St Edmunds petrol station. Police and ambulance service attended the incident at the Jet station in Newmarket Road at about 7.30pm on Friday. An East of England ambulance service spokeswoman said they were called at 7.31 to concerns for the welfare of a man. And finally, the Abbey Gardens in the top ten of most visited attractions. The Abbey Gardens in Bury St Edmunds have been named the ninth most visited free attraction in England. Visit England revealed on Wednesday the results of its annual survey of visits to visitor attractions for 2022, with the popular town centre gardens featuring in a nationwide top ten, which also includes the Natural History Museum, the British Museum, Tate Modern and Brighton Pier. In 2022, the Abbey Gardens were visited by more than 1.3 million people, compared to 1,228,563 in 2019, 1,021,048 in 2020, and 1,276,864 in 2021. And I've got two short news items as well. The Mildon Hall-based online boutique is doing its bit to help others by donating a percentage of every sale to charity. Owner Sarah Weston said her boutique, Gladys and George, was becoming a business with a good cause by donating 10% of every sale from the online store to mental health charity Mind. She said, This concept is part of the business and not just a one-off and is funded out of our own profits. 
I'm really trying to promote awareness of mental health and I'm sourcing more and more products to help encourage happiness and positivity. The businesses we work with share the same values and ethics as ourselves, simply trying to offer a more conscious, ethical and sustainable way to shop, yet with a touch of kindness thrown in. From now on, 10% of every sale at Gladys and George will be donated to Mind via business donation fundraising platform Work for Good. Gladys and George, which is named after Sarah's grandparents on her mother's side, was launched in late 2020. After spells on Mildenhall High Street and in Tuddenham, the shop is now an online-only boutique selling luxurious gifts, gift boxes, accessories, jewellery, stationery, beauty and more. And now... This is another one. The owner of Thetford's only independent bookshop has thanked supporters and looked at the positives as the shop is set to close at the end of the month. Jane James, who has had not just book in Riverside Walk since October 2020, said sales had decreased since Christmas and that had accelerated in the last couple of months. She said... At the end of the day, I'm a bookkeeper as well as a shopkeeper, and it is just not sustainable anymore. Jane added she was proud to have helped get more children into reading in the town with World Book Day, going into schools and promoting the Norfolk Reading Project when she was town mayor last year. For me, it has just been so heartwarming to make that difference and impact on those children's young lives. That is our farewell gift to Thetford. Now, there's a, an editor's note on this before I read it, which says, A good news story with the help of Facebook. Three cheers for social media. Uh, and the article is, The Mutum medals are finally reunited. A Thetford family is searching for the last pieces of the distinguished World War I legacy of four brothers has finally tracked down the last missing medals, which were lost due to a spelling error. Rosemary Snowden has now received her great-uncle Joseph's replacement medals for the conflict from the Ministry of Defence after an appeal on social media. The family already had medals and paperwork for Rosemary's granddad, Arthur, the only brother to survive the war, and one of her other great-uncles, George. The family bought war medals belonging to another great-uncle, Bertie, for £127 on eBay in 2015 after being spotted by historian Darren Norton, but thought all hope was lost in finding Joseph's. Rosemary said, With Bertie, we were very fortunate, but with Joe, we tried everything through the usual route, the census and war records. It was only when Rosemary appealed on the Medals Lost and Found Facebook page that the reason why they were missing came to light. She said, I gave out his service number and name and then was told to stop the search as an expert on the page, Alan Chapman, could tell me what happened. After the war, Joseph's medals were sent to his family home in St Nicholas Street, Thetford, but instead of having his surname as Mutum on them, they had Muchum. With his parents who lived at the house having died from Spanish flu, there was no trace of this family, so the medals were sent back to the MOD and were destroyed. Rosemary contacted the MOD with all the paperwork Alan had given her, and ten weeks later, replacement medals arrived in the post. The set is the British War Medal, the Victory Medal, and the 1914-15 Star. Joseph, who is buried in Thetford Cemetery, served in the Royal Norfolk Regiment and the Royal Fusiliers during World War I. After being shot in the mouth on the Somme, he returned home to Thetford to recover, before rejoining the Western Front and being shot again. When he returned home for a second time, he never fully recovered and eventually died of his wounds. Rosemary's mother Dorothy, who died last year, was also involved in the search. 
Rosemary said, It is sad that Mum missed it by a year or so, but she would be proud that we have all this now. It is like the boys are back together again. One of the country's best-known food critics has given a glowing review to one of the county's newest restaurants. Jay Rayner paid a visit to Lark in Bury St Edmunds, which opened on Angel Hill at the start of this year. The restaurant made its mark on the critic, who has described it as ambitious, clever, relaxed and hugely enjoyable. A particular highlight of the menu, according to Mr Rayner, is the rabbit and black pudding pie, which he described as sensational. Lark opened early this year in the former site of the Flower Hut, which moved to the Fornham St Martin Business Court last year. The head chef at Lark, James Kahn, launched Lark as his first solo restaurant. He used to work at Pea Porridge, the only restaurant in Suffolk to have a Michelin star. The restaurant team responded to the praise on Instagram, saying that they felt overwhelmed by the fantastic review. A massive thank you to the team and everyone who has made Lark possible. And Jay Rayner writes in The Observer and broadcasts on BBC Radio 4. Sadness and questions have been raised over the closure of a Bury St Edmunds supermarket. The cooperative food in Mildenhall Road will shut on August the 19th after its lease expires. County Councillor David Nettleton raised questions about the future of the site, while attention has been drawn to an approved planning application for a co-op on the nearby Marham Park estate, which never opened. Councillor Nettleton, who represents the Tower Division, said the site of the store, formerly a key market in the 70s, Gateway in the 80s and then Summerfield, was a valuable area and wanted to see it used for a public benefit rather than a private one. He added that he felt the store had been struggling due to greater competition from Asda and Aldi. However, residents on social media expressed their regret over the loss of co-op with dozens of comments on the Berry Free Press Facebook page. Stephanie Holland said, Totally gutted. We use it very regularly and the staff are brilliant. Really sad for them and for all the local residents. Adrian White said, What a shame. I use it a lot. It's very convenient on my drive home. Always easy to park. I'll miss it. Been going there since I was a small child. Flats over the river will be built, no doubt. Another question why a proposed co-op on the Marham Park estate never materialised. Plans for a co-op with five two-bedroom apartments above were approved in September 2021 as part of a reserved matters application from FPC Marham Limited, Shepherd Developments, for a local centre on the estate. A West Suffolk Council spokesman said it secured the land for use for retail, employment and non-residential institutions through outline permission and the developer had to market it. A reserve matters application was submitted by Shepherd Developments and the permission has until September to start work. After that time, a new reserve matters will be required, but the requirement for a local centre with some kind of retail, employment or non-residential institutions use will remain. A co-op spokesman said it would have leased the building but had no involvement over construction. The Berry Free Press was unable to contact Shepherd. We're moving on now to letters. Uh, and my letter is, we must be bonkers to be so careless. And that has been sent in via email, Stuart Letton. There is hardly anything left. Somewhere, someone is not trying to conserve what they can. For way too long, we have all been far too casual in caring for our planet and even our very survival. In this very long list must come water. The word drought next summer is headlining. Here in the east we get a miserably low average annual rain supply. Water is part of our natural capital. Individuals, families, communities and business all rely on water. 
It is essential to our personal well-being, to our society and environment, and to our economic prosperity, so says Anglian Water. And who would disagree with that? Water keeps the wheels of life working. Global demand for water will rise 30% by 2030. This unwelcome fact may spell the very end for habitual arid landscapes across the world. Our very own regional demand has risen by 20% since 1990 alone. Every day, 6 million customers will use 1.2 billion litres of high-quality treated water, having passed through 1,106 wastewater treatment works. Each of us use approximately 160 litres of fresh water each day. Perhaps a bath at around 85 litres or a shower at 30 litres a time. Environmental Secretary Caroline Spellman rightly warns we must be much more careful how we use water. Prices will inevitably rise if we have another dry winter. So why is it that we all blissfully flush away about 950 million litres of expensively treated water down the loo each day, enough to fill 380 Olympic swimming pools, when we have tonnes of the soft, pure, clean stuff pouring freely down upon our roofs throughout Britain, but which just tumbles, unclaimed, untapped, out into rivers and sea? What on earth are we all thinking about? We surely have the knowledge, skills and ability to devise simple, affordable rainwater management systems that can assist both backup, store and supply our requirements, whether as a home or as a business. Everyone I bore with this grey water crusade quickly concur we are all utterly, utterly bonkers to even permit such careless rainwater loss. It makes little financial sense either. It is hard to comprehend why governments have seemingly failed to properly address this massive conservation issue as a national disgrace and made it a mandatory planning requirement on new bills at least. It would be a real positive green marketing box to tick on a house sale. Coincidentally, the home I grew up in as a child in Dover Court had three taps over the kitchen sink. Hot, cold and pure rainwater stored in a tank under my bedroom floor. I have never seen such a triple supply since, so why not consider this too? Now my first letter is from Neil Trask by email. Uh, for years I had no idea why I was being suddenly shunned in conversations in Berry Boozers, blanked by old friends I grew up with, scowled at by my old teachers, and even had an elderly priest chuck a turnip at me from his allotment while I was on the phone about my council tax. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Back in London, I was telling my friend about my experiences and he was shocked that I'd never heard of Berry Resentments, the disorder whereby people who have never left Suffolk have an irrational hatred towards anyone who has moved out of Berry to London. Maybe in Berry we should start practising the Amish tradition of allowing young people one chance to leave. Rum Springer, I think it's called. My second letter from Arthur Roberts in Newmarket a report this week that monkjack deer eating crops on council allotments in Bury St Edmunds is very worrying for those of us who like all wild animals and hate the use of guns. Apparently the little deer have jumped fences and the allotment holders do not know what to do to protect their crops at a crucial time in the vegetable growing calendar. All over the world, because of the uncontrollable increase in the human population, Animals have to eat what they can find. Whoever introduced monkjacks into a country such as ours, which is gradually being concreted over, has a lot to answer for. I am sure the report from Berry will start the new market allotment holders off again, and I hope the town council will continue to ban the use of high-powered rifles to kill the deer. All of us can help by providing more natural food for wild animals. I have not cut my front lawn so far this year, 
and I would love to see monkjacks eating my wild flowers and grass. West Suffolk Council has tried to avoid unnecessary grass cutting, but of course this attracts criticism from those who only like concrete to park their multiple heaps of ugly tin and rubber on. A resident has voiced frustrations over ongoing boiler issues, which, at times, has left tenants without heating and hot water at a block of flats in Bury St Edmunds. Pat Stewart, who has been a resident of the Maltings off Mildon Hall Road for a decade, said tenants were often left without hot water and heating and that one side of the building was significantly warmer due to the heat emitted from the boiler. He said, Half the time we have no hot water or heating. It's an absolute joke. I've had enough of it and a lot of people here have as well. If a smoke alarm goes off, we have to call the fire service to turn the alarm off, which turns off all the heating and water until the next day. He added, the tenants had no hot water and heating for a period during the pandemic. Mr Stewart received a letter from Havebury Housing Partnership telling tenants that works to rebalance the building's heating system would begin on Monday and they would be notified closer to the time of further works to install a ventilation system to the plant room. Tenants were told that the Housing Association's contractors, Aaron Services, would inspect boilers on Monday to ensure they were working correctly. Although Mr Stewart sometimes stays at his girlfriend's house, he is worried about elderly and vulnerable residents. I feel depressed. My neighbour, she's 74, and she's depressed too. One side is like a sauna because of the heat from the boilers. The letter ad added that the ventilation works would take approximately 10 working days and that boilers would need to be turned off every day from 8am to 6pm. Avebury said it would notify tenants 14 days before works are due to start. It also said the tenants could book guest rooms with ensuite bathrooms to use the facilities during the time of the works. A spokesperson for Havebury Housing Partnership said, We know there have been ongoing boiler and heating issues at the Maltings and we understand the frustration this has caused our residents. We've been investigating how we can resolve this and kept our residents updated throughout this process. We are working with our contractors and specialist consultants to optimise the functionality of the heating system. A meeting between Havebury and residents was held yesterday for tenants to ask any questions. Now I have a piece entitled Communities Need a Stronger Voice in the Great Grid Upgrade written by Fiona Cairns, who is the director of Suffolk Preservation Society. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Sometimes the way nationally significant energy infrastructure projects are managed is like something straight out of Alice through the looking glass. Reality and language are bent and shaped to suit those in charge. The latest, the latest example of the plasticity of words comes from National Grid, who have embarked on a summer consultation into their plans for over a 100 miles of new pylons in our region to carry electricity from the wind farms in the North Sea to where the power is most needed in the South East. They've switched the name for this project from the somewhat ironic East Anglia Green, G-R-E-E-N, to something more suitably hyperbolic, Great Grid Upgrade North Norwich to Tilbury. Great for who and at what cost? Even the rather debased term consultation isn't really what it might at first appear, for organisations and individuals are being asked to comment on what might be only part of the final proposals. We are not even being asked the full question. 
Earlier in the year, after much pressure from local MPs, communities and campaigning groups such as the Suffolk Preservation Society, the government reversed its initial decision to refuse a review which would consider whether offshore routes might be a possible alternative to some or all of the overground proposals. That said, the national grid's proposals are becoming clearer, with most of the proposed route running in parallel to the existing 400 kV line. This continuity may or may not be a good thing in terms of environmental impact. The whole process more broadly presents the society and others with a dilemma. Whether to engage with the consultation on its own partial merits or to keep up the pressure for wholesale alternatives. In other words, to be pure but possibly out of the loop or be practical but compromise. I understand why some organisations are calling for either the whole route to be placed offshore or underground regardless of the financial costs but as I've written previously I'm not sure whether such stances might make it easier for National Grid to ignore their views in their entirety. I also fear that National Grid will argue that such stances ignore the strategic imperative for this country to secure greater security of energy supply and generation in the face of geopolitical uncertainties. These are unlikely to go away any time soon. But what I would like to see is a complete and speedy review of the terms of engagement under which new transmission routes can be considered. I find it bewildering that the guidelines for the routing of overhead lines are so old that at 63 it'll soon be close to the retirement age. Although slightly adapted and modified since 1959, the Holford rules are still very much the Bible in terms of how pylon routes are assessed. They compromise seven key elements, including the avoidance, if possible, a key caveat, of areas of high amenity value and too many angled towers, the largest structures, plus a preference for open valleys and the avoidance of too many lines clustered together. We believe that there is a good case to be made in light both of new pylon designs and technologies and the much greater importance our society now accords to a breadth of environmental issues for the Holford rules to be brought up to date for the 21st century. Any further work on this particular project should, quite frankly, wait until these are in place in order to allow for a more nuanced and mature debate to take place. We certainly believe that all campaign groups should work together to ensure that any communities impacted by the so-called Great Grid update uh, receive as generous compensations as possible, aimed at offsetting the impact of the route. They may not be the masters in this, but my goodness, they deserve a stronger voice in this process. Patrick Ward of the East Anglian Daily Times is not happy about plans to shut ticket offices at railway stations. He says they're on the wrong track. After the number of hours I've lost throughout my life queuing up at railway station ticket offices, their proposed abolition does not at least mean I won't lose any more. I might not travel by train as much either. The Rail Delivery Group wants to close 974 out of 1,007 ticket offices across the country, which leaked documents have suggested could involve 2,000 redundancies. That'll all work just fine, so long as the ticket machines are working and the railway websites haven't crashed. How could it go wrong? Like most people, I usually buy my tickets online or at a ticket machine, but because of the often chaotic nature of our rail system, along with my ineptitude, I still sometimes have to ask a human at the ticket counter to clarify things. I never know whether my ticket's valid to travel on a later train, or whether it would be cheaper if I got two singles to make up a single trip. And ticket machines just aren't any help with this sort of thing. Have you ever tried striking up a conversation with one? After a recent trip abroad, I missed my train back to Norwich from the airport. 
but thanks to multiple ticket office staff on the route, I found a way to get home using my ticket and not fork out hundreds of quids on another one. And that's just me, all semi-tech savvy, with my smartphone and PayPal account. For an older person or someone with a disability, ticket office staff might be vital. They say only 12% of people still use ticket offices, but that's a UK average and won't be the same across all areas and demographics. And anyway, doesn't that 12% count? It's an attempt to cut staff from proposals to close ticket offices. It's an attempt to cut staff and costs while boosting shareholder returns. As with so many things these days, services are being stripped to the bone. We aren't a poor country. We can afford to keep things running in a way that's accessible to everyone. The owner of Skyward Flight Training has said he is, quote, back to square one after a potential deal for a new home for the business fell through. The flying school was given a letter from Ruffham Estate in February this year informing Chris Shepherd-Rose that his school had to leave the site's airfield in May. And though it looked like the school was closing, a possible new home was offered at the 11th hour, subject to approval from the site's owners. But due to the death of one of the people who was organising the deal for the site near to Cambridge, that option has now gone. Chris said... It is a massive shame that this could not be completed and does leave us back at square one. It has been such a nightmare and demoralising over the last four months in this search. I have looked at around 24 possible airfields and I am not going to stop until we find a suitable place. Ideally, the 71-year-old would like to buy a plot of land as he feels that is the only way to completely secure the school's future, but is more than happy to lease for the time being. Chris said, if we were offered a five-year lease from a landowner, that would be great, but also we want to keep all our options open in the hope to find a home for the school that can't be taken from us like before. We have a lot of loyal members who still stand by us and want to invest in the school, so raising the capital for a possible purchase of land would not be a problem. A possible site for the school, says Chris, would be in a place preferably clear of a lot of houses and have an access road for the delivery of fuel and for students to use. Dental campaigners in Suffolk have called for urgent action before NHS dentistry is lost for good as the report has called on the government to do more and quickly. The report by the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee comes after a BBC investigation last year revealed that NHS dental practices in Suffolk were not taking on any new adult NHS dental patients. Nationally, 8 in 10 NHS practices were not taking on new patients. The committee is currently examining the state of NHS dentistry and has received written evidence from more than 30 health watch groups. In June, a roundtable discussion was held, attended by campaigners from Toothless in Suffolk, which heard accounts of tooth extractions and isolation caused by poor oral health. Earlier this week, the East Anglian Daily Times reported how the campaigners had welcomed the report. Mark Jones, from Toothless in Suffolk, revealed the lack of NHS care in the county, had forced a mother and daughter from Leyston to travel all the way to London for treatment, a round trip of more than 200 miles. Mr Jones said, What is being reported reflects what patients have been telling us for years. We've had a mother and daughter from Leyston tell us that they were being forced to travel the length of the A12 into London to be treated by an NHS dentist. We know of a retired couple who moved from Scotland to Felixstowe and were left gobsmacked when they discovered that none of the town's dental practices were taking on NHS patients. It is indeed completely unacceptable in this day and age for anyone to be left to their own devices by the NHS, especially when young children and the vulnerable are involved. 
the government has known about these issues for years and years. The health minister must not dither any longer. Urgent action is needed before the death knell finally sounds and we lose NHS dentistry for good. During lockdown, Claire Balding learned something she found valuable, that TV isn't as important to her as she thought. That's an amazing admission from someone with an enviably wonderful small screen career, one that has seen her travel the globe to front coverage of sporting events, not to mention her numerous productions on home soil. It was a fantastic opportunity for me to have a sabbatical from television, which effectively I did, because all the events I was meant to work on got cancelled. And in my head it triggered something, which was I really don't need to be on television to have any sort of self-validation, she explains. So if you see her pop up in something now, it's because I love it and I love the event. It's not about me being on television. I see it as a storyteller's role on telly. She adds, I'm very conscious of trying to get the most out of life generally. I want to have new experiences, fresh experiences. I want to be challenged. So my rules are, is it exciting? Is it interesting? Will I learn something? And will I have fun? And if those are affirmative, I will do it. This past few weeks have seen her back on the box with a project that certainly ticked those boxes. She made her debut as the Beebs Wimbledon anchor, taking over from Sue Barker. And now she's popping up again, tackling another topic close to her heart. Balding fronts Channel 4's annual Crufts coverage, so is the ideal person to take charge of a new three-part programme that aims to reunite missing dogs with their owners. It's a show that's sure to tug on the heartstrings and may inspire a few tears. As an animal lover, her autobiography is entitled My Animals and Other Family, Balding herself may join in too. Our dogs are not just pets, they're part of the family, and if one goes missing, it's a traumatic experience, she claims. With Channel 5 leading the charge, I'm looking forward to helping reunite owners with their dogs and to share tips on how to keep our animals safe. According to pet insurance company PetGuard, 40% of the public have had a pet go missing. Sadly, around 60% of these animals are never recovered. Hopefully, Lost Dogs Live can help redress that trend. As well as making appeals on the programme, various roving reporters will be sent across the country to hear stories from people who have either had a happy ending or are still hopeful of one. The opening edition sees Storm Huntley travel to the Isle of Wight to hear from a family who have spent six years searching for their spaniel, Fern, while in Cornwall, J.B. Gill meets the sniffer dogs whose training has turned them into experts at tracking down fellow pooches. Dr. Amir Khan reveals the importance of bonding with a puppy early on, and Michelle Ackerley meets a group of volunteer pet detectives who spend every spare moment using a variety of techniques to reunite missing and stolen hounds with their families. As for Balding, she may not feel the need to be on TV, but if just one dog, one lost dog is found, it's necessary for her to be there. And that is a programme on Channel 5, Tuesdays at 8pm. Tributes have been paid to a much-loved and respected Mary St Edmunds horticulturist who brought joy to many thousands of people and helped shape the town's floral landscape. Peter Tunner, who died aged 88 <coughs> on June the 21st, was initially Park Superintendent for St Edmundsbury Borough Council and later worked as Parks and Landscapes Manager for West Suffolk before retiring in 1994. He was involved in a number of defining projects throughout the town, including the resurrection of Noton Park, which, with its Daffodil Avenue, was his pride and joy. During his tenure, he arranged for the planting of more than a 100,000 trees, and in his final year, he was awarded an MBE by the then Prince Charles. Mr Tanner was born on October the 26th, 1934, in Bury, Greater Manchester. 
Although he trained as a pattern maker, he chose to follow his passion in horticulture, spending almost two decades at Longford Park in Stretford. In 1974, he joined St Edmundsbury Borough Council, moving to Suffolk with his wife Margarita and three daughters. Mr Tunner helped oversee the founding of the Berry and Broom project in 1986, and Eastgate Nursery, which he ran, grew around 30,000 plants a year. Berry won the England in Bloom competition in 1987, the first year it entered. In 1989, Berry came runner-up in the Entente Floral, Europe's top horticulture competition. That same year, the council acquired Noton Park, which Mr Tunner helped to regenerate. The centrepiece of this scheme was the planting of the park's Daffodil Avenue, for which over a 100,000 daffodils were ordered from Holland. In a statement, his family said, at this juncture, Peter would insist we acknowledge the tireless work of the gardeners who were tasked with planting all these bulbs. It was back-breaking work, and they did ask that he please not have any more good ideas, at least for a while. His family said Mr Tunner brought joy to the many thousands that came from Mars around to soak in the splendour of the town. They added, he was a carpenter, a beekeeper, a photographer, an astronomer, an avid bird watcher, a music buff, a fisherman and an entomologist. He waxed lyrical about literature, film, plays and opera. He loved every aspect of nature and nature loved him back. A Haverhill man described as the nicest person you could meet is celebrating his retirement after four decades working as a trolley assistant at Sainsbury's. Richard Pannell, aged 61, has been a familiar face at the Haycocks Road store since it opened, having joined the team at the former Jubilee Walk shop 40 years ago. Mr Pannell finished his last shift on Friday, 14th of July, and has since had over a thousand messages from well-wishers sent to his niece, Julia Seeley, on social media. He's just the nicest person you will meet. Everyone knows him, and he will always ask how people are, and he remembers their names and checks on them, Miss Seeley said. He does a lot of impressions of famous people. He likes to laugh. He's worked hard in all weathers, rain, snow, heat, and it's manual work. I think now will be a time for him to chill and just have a bit of a rest. Miss Seeley said her uncle, who has cerebral palsy, most enjoyed interacting with the regular customers and other staff. Mr Pannell said, You do meet a lot of nice people in this job, which is great. They threw a bit of a party for me on Friday, which was very nice. Mr Pannell, who also dedicated a lot of time to fundraising for Tommy's Bay Charity, baby charity and Great Ormond Street Hospital throughout his life has received over a thousand messages via social media wishing him a happy retirement. Miss Seeley said he's just a really friendly bloke and I think he will be sorely missed there. I think he's really pleased and also quite surprised with how many people have commented or sent messages for him. It's nice to see he made an impact on people. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Colin, Neil and myself, Val, it's goodbye. goodbye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.